This episode and all of our Sundance coverage is brought to you by Rode Microphones and My Road Reel. The world's largest short film competition is back, bigger and better, in 2017. Head to MyRoadReel.com to sign up now. Hey guys, John Fusco here, and I'm proud to be kicking off our Sundance coverage with this incredibly important discussion on how a documentary can be utilized as a powerful call to action. Whose Streets picks up moments after the murder of unarmed black teen Michael Brown at the hands of Ferguson police officer Darren Wilson. Through a harrowing collage of guerrilla-style filmmaking and archival footage, co-directors Sabah Folayan and Damon Davis place us right inside the Ferguson community as racial tensions in the city reach their boiling point. The directors, however, don't focus on the forensic reports or harsh statistics associated with institutionalized racism. You can find those on the internet. Instead, they sifted through nearly 400 hours of footage to isolate their message through the pain and heartbreak of the city's residents. What we get is a stark contrast to a narrative the media presented to us back in 2014. And while it may be uncomfortable for some, the truth is made clear as we watch the intimate stories of men and women who rallied together to push through injustice as the protests unfolded. Activist Brittany Farrell joins Folayan and Davis as we dig deep into the potentials of documentary as a tool for change. Her daughter, Kenna, makes an appearance as well. Regardless of your political affiliation, giving voice to the voices that go unheard is an objective every documentarian should seek to achieve. I hope you enjoy. All right, so I'm John Fusco. I'm here with the co-directors and one of the subjects of Whose Streets. I'm going to ask you guys to introduce yourselves so the audience can familiarize themselves with your voices. Starting with you, Sabah. My name is Sabah Falayan. I'm one of the directors of Whose Streets. My name's Kenna, and I'm in the movie. My name's Brittany Farrell. And I'm Damon Davis. I'm one of the directors of Who Street. Cool. So let's start by, I'm going to ask, how did you get into film? What's your background with film? And I know last night you said you were thinking about going to medical school, but then that kind of dropped out. So how did the film thing happen? Yeah, for me, in hindsight, it feels really organic, but at the time it was an exploration. I had um, grown up in South Central LA. You know, my mom pushed me in education, went to a private school and always saw this career path laid out for me where I was going to be a doctor and be comfortable and, you know, have a good life. And then the further I got through my education, by the time I graduated college, I started to get the feeling that maybe medicine wasn't for me, but I didn't have a plan B. So I took the MCAT mm-hmm. And the scores are good for three years. So I was like, okay, I'm going to take these three years and try to figure out what it is that is really going to fulfill me. Um, And so about a year and a half into that is when Ferguson happened. And it just behooved me to go there and and be with people who were acting on something so urgent. I felt this kind of delay with medicine where this constant rigorous testing and these systems that were keeping me from the work that I wanted to do. And I felt like filmmaking... Well, at first it wasn't filmmaking, but just being in community with people and learning their stories was letting me really touch the work that I wanted to touch. And I first thought I was going to actually do a public health project because that was where my foray had kind of taken me at that point. Um, I worked for a re-entry organization helping people who'd been incarcerated to try to sort of put their lives back together. And over the course of that, I interviewed hundreds of people, participants and employees of the organization, you know, collected a lot of data as well as a lot of narrative stories. And when I was going to Ferguson, I was thinking to myself, how can I be useful? How can I add something and not just come and be another voyeur? And so I wanted to 
do research to prove that there was a public health threat involved in the police and citizens facing off day after day. And I believed at the time that there would be a long-lasting effect of trauma where you would see people experiencing depression and anxiety and, you know, PTSD symptoms essentially from this clash. When I got there, I realized that I could not approach this that way because the environment would not allow it. There was not enough stability to collect the kind of data that would need to be collected to do that sort of approach. And so the film kind of organically grew out of that. I was with my friend from school, Lucas Alvarado Farrar, who's our cinematographer. Mm-hmm. And he was with me from day one, driving back and forth. Did he have a background in film prior to the movie? Or was he someone who just also just joined along with you to document this process? He had a big background in photography and had recently started working as a film producer at Revolt. So he was starting to do interviews and filming concerts, which we learned really lends itself to filming protests as well. So he's able to get some really, really beautiful footage early on, which is what I think caught people's eye at first about the project. And how about you, Damon? What, where did your uh, interest in film come from? I, I have been a, I've been a fan of film, and I've been uh, somewhat of an independent filmmaker or, or, you know, a hobbyist for a while. I'm an interdisciplinary artist, and I had done a documentary almost a decade ago about a friend of mine. Um, it's on death row. Um, and later in life, I was a subject of a documentary that won a... Uh, won an Emmy, but I had been, yeah, I've been doing rap videos. I'd just been playing around with video for a long time. Nothing of this scope yeah. ever in my life. Yeah. Uh, nothing that was this important. Um, or, or at least this, this, um, this timely, like this urgent. It, yeah. it, we had to do it like right then. So um, I remember I was, I was doing a lot of uh, social practice art and organizing around art. Um, and that's how I met a lot of people. That's how I met Brittany. That's how I met uh, Sabah eventually. A lot of uh, people were trying to connect us for a very long time. Um, and I remember we met at a uh, actual um, art show that I had curated, and it was a bunch of friends of mine that had took uh, photography out at the Ferguson protest during the first two weeks. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sabah and Lucas came, uh, Simone, um, they came and they met me, and we just hit it off, and we just started rolling from there. So let's yeah, let's talk about that initial collaboration a little bit more. Sabah, so how did you approach Damon and? What sort of um, role did you want him initially to take on the film? Um, I never wanted to do this project without the deep involvement of somebody from St. Louis. So as soon as I got on the ground and realized that this was going to be a film, I asked anyone who would listen if they wanted to collaborate. And his name kept coming up over and over as an artist. And then I saw his art and the work that he was doing. And I really... Um, I wanted him to be there as the person who was going to make sure that we did right by the community of St. Louis. I knew that no matter how much I intended to, there were going to be blind spots that I had. Um, It's different when you wake up in that zip code. So I wanted to have that element of accountability be a part of our team. Mm -hmm. So that was before I met him. And then once I met him, you know, it doesn't hurt to have an amazing visual artist, musician, you know, interdisciplinary genius on your team who can influence the aesthetics, you know, everything about this project has both of our fingerprints on it. Um, And so I think the, um, the relationship has been really rewarding for me personally. I've learned a lot and... Me too. Amazing. And Sabah's being modest, so she throw genius around a lot. She's one. She's a genius. I mean, um, the documentary itself is just an, a sort of un, such a unique style of documentary because this is something I wanted to get into later into the interview, but it really is like a guerrilla style documentary yeah. in the heart of America, um, which is something that I've never seen before. And that 
added on with footage that, you know, most of the country hasn't seen. I followed, I mean, I, I was an active follower of what was going on in Ferguson for pretty much the entirety of that situation still going on, of course. But you guys just totally like blew my mind as far as the stuff that wasn't shown and sort of the spin that the mainstream media put on those events. You talked a lot about uh, citizen journalism last night. Where do you think the pros of citizen journalism outweigh the mainstream media and how do you see citizen journalism evolving to a point where maybe you know it could become a more credible thing than mainstream media especially in today's media climate i mean i can definitely answer that from the perspective of filmmaking but i'm curious how, how Brittany might feel about that given yeah, you know absolutely. doing these actions that are the topic of a lot of these stories i think for a lot of people they found the truth um on social media with everyday people who don't have experience for journalism who don't have you know experience with storytelling, you know, but it was just people documenting what was actually happening in our communities. And it was happening at the same time that CNN and MSNBC and all these other mainstream media outlets were on the ground reporting, you know, and there were huge contradictions and holes in the story. I don't think mainstream media is for the people anymore. Mainstream media, the narrative that they tell uh, is is a narrative that protects the establishment. I think that the rate that things are going now, people can, I feel like they're able to find more truth Mm -hmm. and power in the people who are telling the stories. Even with Who Streets, with the documentary, it's, it's about Mike Brown, it's about Ferguson, but it's also about the people, the regular people who are telling the honest story of what happened Mm -hmm. and how it has affected our lives in the city and you know and hopefully it will make others want to do the same thing do the same work because you see the you know it's genuine it's i think i would be not surprised at all if mainstream media becomes less of an important outlet you know, when it comes to real issues that are happening. There was a question last night um, during the Q&A where some man asked about why you guys didn't use forensics or anything. And I thought your answer was just like pretty brilliant in the sense that you really focused on the genuine sort of like reactions that the community, the actual community was having to these problems. What I'm wondering and uh, what could be beneficial for our listeners is how do you two as filmmakers garner the trust in your subjects to elicit that sensitive of a reaction or a genuine of a reaction? For me, it comes down to numerous things. The first is entering the space as a human being, first and foremost, with a shared goal. You know, the people who are in the film, their goal was to fight this injustice. My goal as a storyteller was to spread the story that this was an injustice and that people are fighting and that they're fighting with dignity and that they're not you know, who they're being portrayed on in the mainstream media. And so that intention, I think, breaks down a lot of barriers from the beginning. But I think the second part for me is, you know, there are real tangible skills to listening. And this is where my background in medicine and dealing with trauma and all of those things served me, I think, in these relationships because I I didn't realize this was going to be a transferable skill, but to just be able to sit and listen. And I've had some of the most rewarding conversations didn't even make it on camera, but this whole process was a healing process that for me was about a service that I can offer is to come and to say, your story is important mm. and I'm here to listen to it. Even if, you know, whatever, whether we made it to Sundance or not, I was there to 
just to hold and take these stories and let people know that they were valuable because they were valuable to me and they were allowing me to grow and learn and feel more connected in this world. So I think that just, I don't, I don't support the idea that as filmmakers, you come in with some kind of blank lens or you come in to get a balanced view because we're all implicated. We are all, and we're artists, we're working out our own internal demons and our own you know ideas and the things we grapple with and our burning questions we're working those things out through our storytelling through the way that we perceive other people's stories that we film um and so i'm about facing that and owning that rather than acting as though that's a a, a negative thing i think people respond to that and feel it and feel comfortable to be open i would then ask you know there's this sort of common conception that all art is political inherently, and in that sense, film is too. Is that something that you agree with as a filmmaker? Uh, I, I totally agree. And I mean, um, I'm an artist on many different levels, and all of my shit comes, well, all of my art. You can, you can <laughs> right on, right on. <laughs> yeah, but all of my art is somehow deeply rooted in my own personal experience, and there's no way to, to, to separate those two things because like the politics of the world around me influences my everyday life Absolutely. and everybody else's and I think um, I'd also think that people that make art that, that um, is, is explicitly running from that is kind of a cop out and I don't think it really um, and me personally it doesn't touch touch my soul it's not something that gives me the, the, the I, I guess um, the soul food that I need that I want out of art art should comfort people that are uncomfortable mm-hmm. and vice versa. Yeah. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So another theme that you talked about last night was apathy and sort of like the general apathy of the nation right now. Um, how do you use documentary to disrupt that apathy? Time will tell as far as how this film is ultimately received. But I think that for me, what was really, really important was to get those intimate moments and to get those quiet moments and moments that seemed mundane um, because I really hope that people could remember while they're seeing the scenes of protests and chaos and glass breaking, all these things, just always to have in the back of their minds that these are everyday people. And this is what happens when everyday people get pushed. Um, the, we selected the quote, a right is the language of the unheard, because so often Dr. King's legacy is sanitized to saying everybody should get along regardless of their skin color. And that is not his central thesis <laughs> whatsoever. And he understood that pain that bubbles under the surface. And so I wanted to put those things in conversation with each other so that people can understand that these are not, these are people that could be walking down the street next to you. Mm -hmm. It could be you Mm -hmm. if you were so connected to your community and the people around you that you couldn't stand seeing something like this happen and go unanswered. Um, So I hope that people can see themselves in the people in this film. Was there any sort of objective in first going into the film, did you have like a react, like say you could see yourself at Sundance, you knew you were going to be at Sundance with this film when you were initially walking in to do the documentary. What sort of reaction at the beginning of the film were you looking for from an audience and how did that evolve throughout the shooting? Um, I, I personally just wanted, um, I wanted the story of St. Louis and, and the, the idea that these people this could happen anywhere. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I was I was really about like showing a micro and macro sort of uh, putting a lens, that sort of lens on, on what was going on and showing that um, these these situations are very um, commonplace 
in, in multiple different black communities. And I wanted the black people to see the complexity in who they are more than anything. My, uh, I was going after talking to black people. It was not white people, please stop treating us like this. White people, please, like, nah. It, it, was, it was more like black people, this is you. Look at the beauty. Look at the, the power in it and, like, keep it up. Like, yeah. trying to get people soul food to fortify them through the journey and through the fight that, that's going to keep coming at them anyway. Mm-hmm. And not trying to get the other side to sway into righteousness because that probably would have happened already if that could if that could happen. And for me, I would, I would just add that, you know, I felt like this was something where it was going to have a uni- universal appeal regardless. And so in making the film and, and always keeping black people at the center and core of our sites, we knew that it would have a universal effect because at the end of the day in this country, black people tend to be the engine of popular culture and the engine of these conversations. Whether the mainstream likes us and agrees with us or not, we are constantly the topic of conversation. So we kind of felt like we could take for granted that people of all different races were gonna be curious. And my hope was that like Damon, black people would see themselves exalted and see themselves fighting with dignity, but also that people who were not black would leave this film. I didn't want anybody to leave with any answers. I didn't want anybody to leave feeling like they had been prescribed something. I wanted people to leave open, Mm -hmm. leave feeling the chaos that we felt, the irresolution that we felt. Um, So it's very intentional, the way that the film is structured, the way that we move from place to place, and it's disparate and chaotic. You don't get all the answers, and you don't get to know everybody all the way deeply. That's how it was. That's what that experience was like. And so that's what I wanted people to feel. I was actually, one of the questions that I was going to ask is, how do you... And how do you choose an ending point for a movie like this, where the issues are still so prevalent, sorry, and will be for... I mean, who knows how long. I mean, I think Kenneth chose that for us. I think that the ending was like, (laughs) when we saw that happen, that was the ending. Yeah, yeah, that was was the ending. How did you feel seeing that ending, Kenneth? Um, How did he make you feel? Um, I don't know, mixed emotions? Yeah. Mixed emotions? Um, Inspired? Feel like we need to keep fighting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Every time I hear her chant, I feel like we gotta keep fighting. That was yeah. I mean, that was very brilliant and powerful moment to end it on. I won't give Thank that you. away, but um, Brittany, while you're uh, while I have your attention, Damon was talking a little bit about mobilization and this sort of rallying call that this film provides to the African American community. Where do you see the value of a documentary like this as a sort of figurehead of that mobilization? Um, I think storytelling is important. So many of our stories have already been lost. You know, we are a lost people when it comes to history and the atrocities that have happened to us simply because we live in this white supremacist world. I think anybody who's documenting a story such as the one that comes out of Ferguson, um, it has to be told, and it has to be told truthfully and with integrity. I'm so, so honored to have Damon and Sabah tell our story, to tell St. Louis's story, because the world, they had one narrative to hold on to, and that was the narrative that was being spoon-fed to them by mainstream media. You know, the fear-mongering and the riot porn, and you know, but to have two people who, you know, 
who are just as passionate about, you know, black freedom, black liberation, black life as I am tell this story for the world to see and to, to find themselves in spaces like Sundance where, you know, I mean, it's, this work is it's, it's literally one heart at a time, you know, and to have this type of platform, it, I am so grateful. This episode and all of our Sundance coverage is brought to you by Road Microphones and My Road Reel. The world's largest short film competition is back, bigger and better, in 2017. Head to MyRoadReel.com to sign up now. As I said earlier, you know, you had this guerrilla-style filmmaking in the heart of America. How were you able to do that? What sort of gear did you use? How did you roll? Like, were you, how were you able to escape situations so quickly? You know, you, you said before the screening last night that you had your DP literally, like, pulling focus on a tear gas canister as it was being shot at him. What was that experience like, filmmaking? It was heavy. I mean, that's the only thing to say. When we were driving back and forth, so me and Lucas, when we first started, there was no funding. Um, it was me, Lucas, and our editor, Christopher McNabb, for the first kind of, like, four months of the process. And all of us working for free. Chris was the only one of us who had been to film school and he was we would go to Ferguson come back um, he looks at the footage he's like guys we need b-roll I can't do this without b-roll we go back he's like I need better audio if we don't have better audio it's not going to be a movie and so kind of honing we were honing the process constantly um, we started with Lucas's 5D which is you know you might know photo yeah, yeah, camera. Yeah. you know she's pretty good video yeah. but it's <laughs> And we, you can hear the lens when we were at rack and all that kind of stuff. And then as we started to get support, we moved up to a C300. Um, there was a phase where we were using an Alexa Mini that was donated or, you know, bought, we borrowed from uh, this company called Whirlyworks. Um, we got actual mics that we could lob people with. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> like actual, Right. And so the documentary funding community really, really circled around us when they saw what we were trying to do and how we were doing it um, to really upgrade our production value and quality and so even though it is guerrilla style and it looks guerrilla style it took a lot of support we had close to 400 hours of footage by the time it was all said and done we followed you know seven people intently with into their daily lives with them going places meeting their kids um we were open the entire time to what this story could be and what it needed to become we were determined to let the story tell us what it needed to be as it was unfolding rather than to try to superimpose a narrative on it before we saw what had played out um so it was a really really intricate process it was a really it was a learning experience i think for all of us but what we came out with at the end of the day was a product of a lot of choices. And there were a lot of different documentaries we could have made. We could have made a fact-based, you know, expert-based documentary with the footage that we have. And we chose not to because we felt like there was a more powerful story. So when I get this question about, when we get this question about why didn't we show the evidence and why aren't there more law enforcement people in there? Well, as far as law enforcement, I feel like actions speak louder than words. Yeah. You see them a lot. And they was there. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. They was there. Yeah. They you had every opportunity to speak, and they yeah. chose not to speak. And you and heard them speak. You heard what they were saying to people. Like the scene with the lady about the curfew. You heard what they said. You saw when they was like the guy in his backyard. Like you you see what, what was being said. And, and then like Sabah said last night, we got we talked to the uh, the police chief. We talked to... The uh the mayor like they talked to the mayor early like the first like like when they first got there you know what I mean but like you should be able to see the humanity in in people and you should be able to see, like this is the thing that we get so caught up in in 
like um, the law, like oh, you know, or not the law, but like just the logistics of things, and we miss the humanity yeah. and, and and what's what what is like burning inside of you that something is right or wrong, and I think that's what we got in this film. Absolutely, it's like what's right and what's wrong. You know, you could put it, you can you can dress it in anything, you can call it anything, but what's really truly right when you look at it? What can you sleep with? And what can you know? Like, how can you carry on your day when you watch this? Right. You know, and like that's I think for for the both of us, I think that was really important. That was the, that was the first thing we was worried about more than trying to you know. So then, did that sort of realization come about as you were shooting the film, or more like in the editing stage of the film when you were like, oh, we have all this great footage of like humanity. This is the route we should take, not the forensics take. No, that was, yeah, yeah. We was there on that. (laughs) It was always, I think it was more a question of, of understanding our audience and what was really going to be the scope of it and what could we get away with and what couldn't we, because, you know, there's this question about telling the larger story and the facts and the data and what happened and setting the scene. And that was something we grappled with for a long time. I think we filmed more, then we knew we would need to give ourselves the option, but we always wanted to go straight from the heart. If yeah, you see, yeah. you know, our director's statement was, was written before Early. we started the movie. Yeah. So we always wanted to go straight from the heart. And, um, you know, we realized ultimately all this information is out there. If someone is really interested in the Mike Brown case, they can go look it up and they can find out of how Bob McCullough gave an invalid case law to the grand jury. They can find all the conflicting statements and the one corroborating Darren Wilson's wasn't even there on the day of. And they can look at the pictures of him and see how his face wasn't bruised. All of that evidence is available on the internet. There are other films who touch on it. So we're keenly aware of the landscape that this film sits in and what it's supported by and surrounded by. And we had no desire to duplicate what has already been done and can easily be done. Right. We wanted to do the more difficult thing. Yeah, telling a human story. And on the same note as what so I was just saying. So all that evidence is there if you want to believe it. But at the same token, you can see all that evidence and not like no matter what we tell you, it's certain people that that will still mm. never believe it. So the thing is, we had to tell a story that was true to us. Well, and yeah, those other people. and it's, it's almost like it was unbiased in that sense. Yeah. You know, like you're so used to seeing this biased narrative from the <clears> media <throat> yeah. that we actually see in your film what is going on without any sort of slant on it and that was something that was like very refreshing and again something that doesn't exist in this landscape so yeah. far you're the first person to tell us ever that it's not biased yeah really we always the biased people. okay well i don't know i mean yeah uh, people are trained to think i agree with you i don't <laughs> yeah, think there's a bias to like should a teenager be alive yeah. i feel like I that's as objective yeah, as think, yeah. no i mean i think you guys did a very good job of keeping it neutral as far as i mean presenting the story as it happened as mm-hmm. it existed and i mean i think maybe people think that because i mean that's it's what they've safe. been trained to think too yeah and, they, and, it, and, it, and it makes you you don't have any culpability in it mm-hmm. you know exactly. like people can look away and they can like that's that's everybody else's problem yeah but like but when you see it this way and and if you are like we are all part of this this system this mm-hmm. this this machine mm-hmm. like this I think like Sabah said it, it's open so like now you have to figure out what you can do to change this we didn't we don't we're not giving you no answers right. we're not going to give you an easy way out you have right. to figure out what you need to do to be a, an effective part of changing the world for the better and it's like it's like you said like if you are inspired to go look up the forensic facts after you've seen this movie. That's great, <laughs> you know. Go look, go do more research into this cause because it's. That's up to you, though. That's not for exactly. us. We well, made the movie. That is your duty as filmmakers, yeah. I think. And, and I think when people ask the question about why didn't we, why don't we hear a balanced narrative for police, what they're really asking is why didn't we create an environment where police 
look sympathetic. Yeah. You know, why didn't we create an environment for us to empathize with police? Because I really just find it very crazy how much you see police on screen and yet still still people are waiting for something that is going to make what they're doing okay. And there's nothing that makes it (laughs) okay to gas people in their own yards. There's just no statement. There's no talking point. And the thing is, you can predict what they're going to say. Mm-hmm. Everyone has heard it before. And that's what, and I think that's one of the biggest reasons we didn't use the interviews we got. They are the talking points. They are the PR points. It's yeah. the same thing that you could see written. You already saw them see it. They told us the exact same thing when we in closed quarters with them. You know what I'm saying? So like, and a great point that uh, my fiance made yesterday after seeing it, she was like, they, these people just saw this whole movie about the, the these people going through their lives and children and everything. And the first questions people got is about the police. Yeah. Not about the people in the movie. You know what I mean? It's about the why, do, <clears throat> why we don't hear from the police. Why we don't. The first thing people say. Not no questions about what happened with the case. What yeah. happened with. Yeah. Right. And yeah. I, I think it's also an interesting. It's interesting the way that people, especially in this country, conflate police as a profession with police as a human identity and like you know people responding blue lives matter well that's a profession Mm -hmm. and people take off those uniforms and then become people just like everybody else there may have been off-duty police officers in protest we don't know there may have been there were former police officers have been definitely advocates you know we've had people attempt you know police officers attempt to come to us as informants, you know, we've had, there are p- police officers who are human beings on all sides of this. So I don't need to speak to someone in a uniform to get a diverse perspective. Right. And the idea that a person should have this allegiance to their uniform and should be allowed to speak out of allegiance to their uniform and that uniform should be a public service that doesn't have an opinion, that doesn't do anything basically, but pretty much abide by the law and try to preserve life. You know, it's not a it's not a perspective that is ever going to be on par with any other human perspective for me. Okay, an individual police officer who has a lens, that's one thing. But I would approach that person as a father and as a citizen and as whatever the other things about their life may be. And and policing will be one part of their identity. Um, But I, I really do challenge the idea of perceiving police as an as an identity, as though it's a it's a type of human being, as though someone is born a police officer and it's genetic or something like that. It's not. No. And it's I think not. even asking that question, like when the guy asked last night, um, why didn't we, you know, include law enforcement? Um, it's like a disrespect to our humanity, mm-hmm. you know, especially after sitting there watching that entire film. It's like it's like you you think that you know people are going to look at this story and you know empathize or feel compelled but then you knock us down a few more notches by disregarding our humanity and just saying well what about the police and it's like what else do we gotta do what do we have to do (laughs) like i'm gonna ask you guys where do you see the future of independent film as far as you know the film that you've made and how it can sort of change hopefully be an agent for change I'm I'm really, really thrilled about it. Um, as we were making this film, we were very aware of its potential for tangible organizing. And so it is it exists in these kind of units that can be broken down and pulled apart and investigated for their individual components. And you can look at it from an organizing lens. You can look at it from a mental health lens. You can look at it from a historical lens. It has all of these potentials to be analyzed and deconstructed for a really long time. And I think that nonfiction filmmaking for me is such a potent medium 
And I'm also really interested in going to, into hybrid documentary as well, because using the raw material of people's lives, when someone has entrusted you with that, it lends a certain amount of gravity and potency to a story. But then as a filmmaker, you know, and, and, I think I could spend, we can spend a lifetime honing this craft. I'm really excited to, you know, get back into it with the lessons that I've learned. But to be able to have a conversation with an audience, engage an audience in a call and response, you know, you're thinking about what are they going to think? Okay, how are they going to feel when they feel this? And then what's the next thing that they need to feel? And, you know, exploring that relationship with that gravity, I think is just such a special process. And I think, I hope that this documentary can help to usher in, you know, a new sense of open-mindedness about what documentary can be and the artfulness that can be applied to it and the various ways that it can be approached um, so that other nonfiction filmmaking can become richer and lose that kind of stale connotation of of expert interview dead on. But also move away from the the kind of exploitative, let's look at all these explosions, move away from the bird's eye view thing that we kind of have this very dry set of conventions. And I think um, our resistance needs to be on the plane of storytelling as well. We need to do this guerrilla style filmmaking. However, each filmmaker style articulates itself will be different. But looking at this as art and looking at these stories and this footage as media that can be used to shape and to to persuade and to change, I think it just has such a potency. I'm excited to to keep pushing boundaries and see other filmmakers push boundaries. Absolutely. I think that something that's very important is that um, I was born and raised there. You know what I mean? And like I was born and raised there and I have had the opportunity to like I like it is I'm very honored that I had the opportunity to be one of the storytellers that actually got to tell the story that came from that place at that time and I don't think I can I don't know but I can't speak for anybody I can't think of another time where this has ever happened that someone has been so instrumental and been so in the driver's seat with another person to actually be um like detrimental to the story and and to like live it like the people that live live these stories are always just subjects i hate that word i think we need to get away from that situation you know what i mean like but but i think that like i think i hope that this ushers in a a time where people get to tell their own stories where like the people that are living these stories are in the driver's seat on these stories and get to really like um like it's been a pleasure and i honor working with somebody somebody to like no moves are made like is this the right like is this the right way to go is this like is this what this look like from where you like you grew up here is this how it works is this like i think that's very important and i hope that we are not the last people to have this type of relationship and this type of thing go on uh when it comes to movies i just think that the people who live in these stories need to be finally need to be empowered to tell their own story i think you're both absolutely 100 percent correct and i think that the democratization of film is something that is happening and will continue happening and it's movies like yours that really make that a beneficial thing for society so thank you both thank you so much and uh, thank you i look forward to seeing what you guys do next right on I have just a bit of a postscript here, as it's been an intense week in U.S. affairs. If the beliefs brought up in this podcast offend in any way, I really do apologize, but I also implore you to please give this film a chance. You may find yourself exposed to new views on old issues which continue to divide an increasingly divisive America. I know I'm just some random dude here, and we're just a film website, but I have to believe that we're all in this together. 
Thanks for listening and stay tuned throughout the coming weeks. This is just the first of many great interview podcasts and roundtables that we've worked hard to obtain from our time at Sundance. We'll be reporting live from Park City with our final thoughts on the festival for this Thursday's episode of Indie Film Weekly. If you like what we've been doing for the past year, please show us some love and subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform you so choose. You can follow me at Jim underscore John underscore Jim on the Twitter, and I'll see you on Thursday.